What's happening in Eastern Europe? We are rarely talking about the whole region. And today we are trying to make a snapshot of this region to talk about interconnections between different countries. Uh, hello and welcome to this event organized by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine World with partnership uh, with Kyiv Security Forum. We are very glad to have this partnership. Um, and in this event, during this event, we will try to look at different countries, not only on Ukraine, but also on Belarus, uh, on Georgia, on Armenia, on Azerbaijan, on Moldova, on the Black Sea region. Uh, t trying to uh, look at it as a whole. So I'm, I'm very glad to um, uh, present our speakers, our guests. First of all, it's the director of Kyiv Security Forum, Danilo Lubkivsky. Thanks, so thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Deputy Minister of U uh, for Deputy Foreign Minister of Ukraine in two thousand former, former former one yeah I'm <laughs> saying former yeah that's right uh, in uh, two thousand fourteen right uh, and the director of uh, the Kyiv Security Forum. And uh, let me also present our guest from uh, Britain, Andrew Wilson, uh, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Hello, Andrew. Uh, I'm also glad to... Hi, hello. Yeah, we have a certain delay, of course, in this, uh, in this communication. Very happy to introduce our uh, Belarus expert, Katerina Schmartina, who is Rethink CEE Fellow at the German Marshall Fund and Research Fellow at the Belarusian Institute for Strategic Studies. Also our expert from Georgia, Sergei Kapanadze, who is professor at uh, Caucasus University and Ilya State University and former vice speaker of the Georgian parliament and former Georgian uh, uh, deputy foreign minister. And our another Ukrainian speaker, Hanna Shellist, who is a security studies program director at Ukrainian prison and chief editor at Ukrainian Analytica, a Ukrainian analytic journal. So you can see uh, the vast number of topics and speakers. Uh, we'll try to really to talk about the whole region. Uh, we already practice this at our Ukraine world uh, production. We recently had a very interesting podcast with Nico Popescu, Moldovian French uh, expert about this, uh, the whole region, and we try to uh, continue this practice. So Danilo, uh, let's start with you. Uh, you can see very different countries and uh, Ukraine, and you, you're trying to raise this issue very often also at Kyiv Security Forum, one of the biggest and most reputable forum for security studies uh, in, in Europe as well and in Eastern Europe. What are the key trends in, in this region in Europe? I highly, first of all, I highly appreciate uh, uh, your kind words about the Kyiv Security Forum. And before I start answering your important question, because I'm, I'm impressed, it's a quite an endeavor that you are, you are organizing today. Uh, before I start answering the question, uh, I, let me first of all thank you, dear Volodyu, thank, to thank Internews and Ukraine World for initiating this important discussion. Uh, on behalf of the KU Security Forum, it's a real pleasure to be here and to work with you. And I admire our cooperation for years. You are our frequent speaker and guest. Um, and I also would like to, to greet our great colleagues that we have today with us discussing Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe is something something special, and you are you are completely right that the Kyiv uh, Security Forum keeps the Eastern Europe in focus. I will try to be brief, as you asked me. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite an Let's impossible. <laughs> it's quite an impossible task, but I will try to be 
as brief as possible and to outline some general reflections that I have about uh, my understanding. I do not pretend that this, these views are right, <laughs> but let me say that my understanding of Eastern Europe and what we see over the last decade. Um, quickly, just to sum it up, I believe that over the, the most important future, over the last decade, Eastern Europe has become more sound and visible in international politics. And uh, I would like to number, uh, I would say, five key, tr the most important trends to highlight them uh, while speaking about Eastern Europe. First of all, first and foremost, uh, that uh, Eastern, uh, that the region continues to and tries to overcome, to overcome the destiny of being the gray zone between Western Europe and Western Asia and Russia. Uh, be it Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus or Georgia, all our nations re-entered, re and this is a very important thing to underline, re-entered the, the international scene and the scene of global history, appearing to be one of the most important geopolitical discoveries of the 21st century. So they were invisible before, you yes, think, and, and now they are... I mean, something kind of... undiscovered. I mean, something which was not clear, something which was uh, in the shadow of the, uh, of, uh, of the Soviet Empire or of uh, Russian interests and so on. Something that voiced itself. The second trend, the second uh, dimension that I would like to say, that what I witness and we all witness, that many important, sometimes extraordinary in their historic significance, internal changes in our countries, in the countries of the, of the region, uh, that show how promising is the vital energy of Eastern Europe. Uh, I would call it, it's a nation-building transformation, which encompasses a number of important feature, features. Uh, national, democratic, uh, economic changes, Everything that makes uh, this, uh, everything that helps make this uh, region understandable and clear to see how the variety of nations, the, the variety of cultures, and uh, for and the variety of thoughts and aspirations of, of the countries in, in the region, and and uh, Ukraine plays its role in that in that process. The so instead of this, uh, just to continue your thought, instead of this, you know. An idea that Eastern Europe is all about Russia and everything is the same here, we see over the past decades the, the variety, something that, you know, the increasing diversity of the region. Right? I fully agree. And Eastern Europe is not about Russia. Once uh, Henry Kissinger said that this is uh, uh, Russia's nightmare, the Western border, which means uh, 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 the, the nightmare of history with, Eastern, with Western nations. Uh, for that, I, 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 I would say that Eastern Europe is far from being some kind of, you know, uh, preoccupied with uh, of, uh, of Russia's brand or something of that kind. The point number four, uh, the point number three, uh, what we also may acknowledge, uh, looking at the region, is the conflict—a uh, conflict which lasts for 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 years—the conflict between liberalism and illiberalism, between market economy and oligarchy, between democracy and autocracy, between between the past and the future, if I may say so. 
Uh, uh, recently, I saw an interesting piece by one of the author famous authors, I wouldn't name him, who said that looking at, the Eastern, looking at Eastern Europe, he saw the authoritarian belt, which cracks now. I completely disagree. I believe that what we witness today is, uh, is the democratic belt in Eastern Europe, which is being built. And uh, I believe that a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot depends on Ukraine, how Ukraine uh, will support and encourage this uh, kind of transformation that we see in uh, Eastern Europe. Point number four. Point number four is Russia. Russia has not and will not change its attitude toward uh, the region, uh, considering it a buffer zone and the sphere of, of, the, of uh, its interests. Um, for that, I believe that uh, we, should, uh, we, should, we should acknowledge the fact that uh, the aggression and constant attempts of the Kremlin to, to regain Russia's dominance remain uh, over the region remain one of the most dangerous trends in Eastern Europe. And point number five, which is fortunate and unfortunate at the same time. I would call it the strategic indecisiveness of the West. Unlike Russia, the West unfortunately still has, ha has not or has not declared yet a comprehensive vision of the region, meaning, meaning bringing about the signals to Ukraine Moldova, Georgia, and in the future Belarus, free Belarus, uh, for, for having the perspective of joining the European Union and NATO, if there is a plan and this plan is achievable. Uh, for, on the other hand, we should also acknowledge, and for that reason I mentioned that, it, speaking about the West, speaking about this fifth point, that we should also acknowledge yet another fortunate feature, uh, for, um, uh, which, is the, which is the fact that uh, uh, I believe for, for, uh, this is something unprecedented, what we see, uh, and uh, the, the, the level and the weight of the Western support, the Euro-Atlantic support of our nation. So we have these you know, two elements together, the strategic indecisiveness, but on the other hand, we have the understanding that the West not only um, supports, but contributed strongly into, into that region. And this element is very important not to give a chance for any kind of anti-Western history that we may see in some parts of our region. Thank you very much, Danilo. Thank you for this uh, overarching uh, overview. It's indeed, you mentioned all the key points and thank you for brevity. <laughs> it was a very hard <laughs> task, I understand, in five minutes to, um, uh, to mention all these five trends. I think uh, to many issues we will come back. Let me ask now Andrew Wilson. Andrew, you are uh, in the Western Europe, right? You are observing, uh, observing the trends in Eastern Europe from a quite a distance. What is your take? What are the key trends in Eastern Europe over, over the past, uh, let's say, decade? Who first, Volodya? Me? Yes, yes, Andrea. The, the, the question is to you. Uh, thanks for Volodymyr. Um, three mega trends in the region. Well, if um, one trend is diversification, then there is no common trend in the region. But I'm happy to play the game uh, and suggest three things over the last three years. One is that Russia has shifted from uh, trying to recruit pro-Russian actors to what I guess in Russian you would call shadow technology. 
um, not acting so directly, but increasingly through proxy voices in the region, um, not encouraging pro-Russian sentiment, but trying to encourage disillusion with local powers uh, and so-called external governments, or depicting the EU as such. And Russia has had some successes, not in, not in creating big um, anti-European electorates, but more in kind of softening up public opinion in key countries like Ukraine, where you see rising numbers uh, of sort of skeptics, skeptics or, or don't knows in, in public opinion. So that's one. But two is the continuing realities of Russian hard power and security pressure. Um, so you can see an evolution of Zelensky's thinking in particular after two years as president, that he's kind of shifted to uh, shifted a long way away from his kind of early naive optimism, um, a kind of PR approach to foreign policy, um, into a kind of much more pragmatic understanding of how Russia operates uh, and the need for sort of hard power support from the West, um, possibly over pitching the case in terms of um, demanding closer relations with NATO, etc. So that's one and two. Thirdly, a kind of domestic change in the kind of eternal struggle between democracy and oligarchy, between reform and sistema, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you've seen oligarchies in four of the Eastern Partnership states, uh, the relatively or the semi-democratic ones, excluding Belarus and Georgia, excluding Belarus and Azerbaijan, big one, where oligarchies realise the power of minority actors, that instead of um, having to fix elections or create entire virtual party systems, you've seen a shift to judicial technology, right? Much easier to sort of exercise influence in the courts and veto political change coming from legislatures or presidents and encouraged by the EU. And you can see that in Moldova, Armenia, Georgia, uh, and Ukraine. So the judiciary is now the key struggle, I think, the key arena of struggle between reform and uh, entrenched systema. And the two countries to watch uh, in that respect are obviously Ukraine, which only a few days ago passed, uh, hopefully an epochal judicial reform, and Moldova. Both share the same slogan of de-oligarchization and it will be interesting to see how meaningful that becomes and if there is meaningful cooperation and even emulation between the two. Um, so finishing on a positive note, um, uh, in domestic politics at least. Thank you, Andrew. It's very interesting what you're saying. Let me come to these first two points because they are kind of... Uh, driving to in a different directions uh, do you see for example russian increasing influence or decreasing influence because if we look at belarus for example we see that um, last year we see probably decreasing influence but right now and we will turn to belarus a bit later right now we see much more increasing influence but in ukraine the trend is probably reverse uh, so what is your general uh, perception of this well you can see russia committing Resources, right? There have been plenty of leaks uh, from within the Kremlin uh, describing exactly how 
Russian political technology operates abroad. Um, what impact they get from that resource uh, commitment clearly depends on circumstance. Uh, when we, we're going to talk about Moldova later, where despite um, investing considerably in Dodon and his project, um, the impact was relatively small. Belarus uh, is a completely special case, where in order to survive, uh, Lukashenko clearly has uh, invited in Russian support. Political security and political technology, though not yet substantially financial. But that doesn't, again, necessarily mean rising Russian influence. Uh, Lukashenko very much wants to survive on his terms, dictating um, how domestic politics operates. He doesn't want a pro-Russian fifth column that might act against him. Um, so Russia's return on these increased investments, if you like, uh, very much depends on local politics um, and local specifics. And in Ukraine, you've seen changes in public opinion uh, with some buy-in to this idea that the EU, at least, is a kind of factor of external governance. But on the other hand, you've seen Zelensky embracing the EU and NATO uh, much more. So um, contradictory trends, if you like. Thank you, Andrew. We'll, we'll now turn to Belarus and I would like to come back to Danilo. Uh, maybe it's very difficult, but maybe in two words, let's try to show to our listeners what is the importance for Belarus for, of Belarus for Eastern Europe? Why it is important? Belarus is important for its own, I will say, I will start from, from, say, from, uh, from uh, my conclusions about the, the, uh, uh, for the importance of Belarus for the, the national reasons of Belarus. First of all, Belarus is important because it's a, it's a nation which deserves to, be, to become a full-fledged member of the European Union and NATO. Uh, our good in terms of free Belarus society, in terms of free nation that we uh, so vividly saw in the streets of Belarus recently. Uh, for, for that, Belarus proved to be an independent nation which strives for better future. For Ukraine, Belarus is strategically important because we consider Belarus to be our strong strategic partner in terms of our strong, I mean, political strategic ties, but also in terms of our joint stance um, uh, against Russia's aggression. So for, for that, for all these reasons, for Ukraine, it is uh, vitally important to make everything possible to help Belarus society to stand, to stand up the, uh, the, the oppression of uh, Lukashenko and his regime and to protect the possibility of changing its destiny and future. Uh, I would say very dramatically that if Belarus does not uh, protect its sovereignty right now, for Ukraine it will be very di difficult to protect Quite, it. It would be a, a strong challenge to our security. Let us now turn in detail to Belarusian topic. Uh, I'm very glad to invite Katerina Shmatsina, who is one of the experts of a regular uh, product we, we are producing, Ukraine World, with the European Values Think Tank in Prague. Uh, the Belarus Watch Briefing, you can find it on our website, ukraineworld.org, very regular bi-weekly uh, overviews. So, Katerina, uh, we have been talking about these Russian influences. Can you uh, summarize the trends over the past few months? We have seen, of course, the Russian encroaching, 
the Belarusian society. But at the same time, Andrew mentioned this, you know, Lukashenko always everlasting game to protect uh, his power against even Russian influences. So what are the trends right now? Uh, so first of all, I'm happy to join this conversation and maybe I will uh, state that it is hard when I'm talking about the developments in my home country as we speak. It is hard not to get uh, distracted to, let's say, um, to some dramatic developments when you realize that your peer colleagues, let's say, think tankers uh, had to flee the country at the fear of prosecution. Literally today I spoke to uh, one of my colleagues who called me saying that, hey, I'm safe, but I know that there were like two criminal articles against me and I sort of escaped last minute. And I myself uh, had to flee for the same reason a year ago. Uh, and so I would just like underline that this is the environment uh, the Belarusians live in, even at, at the time of uh, this sort of not random, but everlasting repressions throughout this year. And uh, again, I cannot think of uh, some think tankers or researchers who still stayed in the country, really. Uh, and I want to reiterate that even if we do not see the massive protests on the street, it doesn't mean that the protest mood went uh, away and uh, disappeared. It just went underground, uh, waiting for another chance to uh, to um, to express itself. And then uh, I, I recall this conversation with uh, Andrew Wilson a year ago uh, at UCL. We were talking about uh, elections, upcoming elections. I think it was maybe a week before the election day and talking about prospects of what happens to Belarus. We all sort of thought that it's going to be very much the repetition of previous year's scenarios when there would be just a little bit of protest on the election day. People would be frustrated with this uh, obviously fraudulent uh, vote count, but then the uh, protest would subside and this is not what happened. Mm, and even at that time, a year ago, uh, experts and, and myself included, we were arguing that Lukashenko clings to power so badly that he would stay in power at the cost of spilling blood on the streets and surviving at any cost simply because he himself and his uh, like cronies, his closest circle, including his family, they do not have other options other than to, like, to secure their own uh, survival other than to stay in power. And then uh, when we talk about Russian influence, I would say that, again, uh, a year ago, it was hard uh, or it, it's now hard to uh, recall. But uh, again, few weeks and uh, maybe a month uh, before the elections, during the presidential campaign, Lukashenko was using quite, um, quite uh, uh, harsh rhetoric towards Russia, claiming that Russia is planning to stage a color revolution in Belarus and uh, pointing out to this incident with Wagner mercenaries. Uh, and then after the protesters uh, like showed up on the streets, then the rhetoric of Lukashenko changed. Uh, and then he again turned to, to Russian support as it always happened in, uh, in previous years. When things go uh, wrong with, let's say, with the West or domestically, Lukashenko would again, once again, turn into uh, Moscow's embrace. And then I would once again uh, point out that there was sort of a time gap uh, from the beginning of the protest and uh, for, for the next uh, month when it was not clear what uh, is the actual scope of Russian support or whether Russia explicitly um, supports the Lukashenko regime. Uh, 
yes, there were those meetings in uh, Sochi. Yes, there was this uh, promise of Putin to give yet another few, uh, was it like two, uh, I don't remember the figures, but to get uh, yet a new loan to, to Belarusian economy. Uh, but uh, if we translate that kind of support in practical uh uh, numbers that would be enough just to sustain the Belarusian economy for for a few months, and it did not uh, translate into some actual like practical support or or support for the Belarusian uh, regime. Uh, and then uh, after several months, it became more clear that Russia sort of calculated their options on uh, whom it is better to. Um, uh, to support, and they became more vocal with the support of the Lukashenko regime. And, and for the past months, uh, what they've been uh, doing, among other things, is to point out that the interests of the Union state, so to say, are violated when the West introduces sanctions towards Belarus. Or whenever there are some calls for some sort of mediation, then um, Russia would again, uh, once again, reiterate that this is interference into the sovereignty of Belarus, but also in the interests of Russia are uh, harmed uh, through through those uh, calls. And uh, I would also point out the fruitless attempts of the Belarusian Democratic Forces to reach out to Russia, or at least to explain that they do not intend to uh, shift away from Russia overnight or that they would even call for for Russia to be one of these um, participants of the dialogue uh, under OEC possibly. And then uh, in the Russian eyes, in the Kremlin eyes, those uh, figures of the uh, political opposition are not taken seriously at all. And, uh, and, and publicly, like, let's say like the former Belarusian Russian ambassador to Belarus and uh, Kremlin spokespersons and uh, other sort of people in Kremlin, they use uh, very uh, disrespectful uh, rhetoric towards the Belarusian opposition, and they do not even bother to again uh, to to to, um, uh, to give an illusion that Russia would take other side other than uh, Lukashenko's side. Uh, and uh, so uh, here, here is the uh, and, and here is the the point where we are now as a Belarusian society. On one hand, uh, there is this like domestically, there is a lot of frustration with the Lukashenko regime, uh, and then again, like the protest mood is not going anywhere. But at the same time, the regime re remains uh, on on two pillars, and one of them uh, is uh, Russian support. Uh, political and uh, economic support. And then uh, it, it is hard to imagine the scenario that the Lukashenko regime collapses until uh, Russia withdraws its support uh, again uh, from uh, from the official Minsk. And then there is another pillar that uh, is still uh, sort of supporting the, the Lukashenko, in, in, uh, uh, which is the sort of the, the agreement of the elites, uh, of the current political elites that uh, Lukashenko uh, provides the status quo and their economic interest also in the country. So for them, the, the democratic change uh, brings some threats of, in, in terms of what they're going to lose if something changes. But at the same time, again, uh, there are signals that uh, some of uh, Lukashenko's sort of wallets and businesses close to his uh, circles, they 
sometimes reach out to the Belarusian Democratic Forces because they are worried about the content of sanctions uh, and uh, what's going to happen to them in case of some sort of democratic transition happens. And they still signal this that they are questioning what happens after Lukashenko and also if they would show some loyalty to the Belarusian Democratic side rather than to uh, Lukashenko. I'll stop here and happy to talk further about Belarus. Katarina, thank you so much. Uh, you started from this, uh, you know, uh, overview uh, of human rights violations and attack on human rights. We know it in general terms, but it's very important to, to understand what's happening in detail. So uh, can you name all those processes, how this crackdown on liberties and freedoms is going on? Because what we hear is sometimes it's just unbelievable how draconian it, it, it is and how Belarus is really turning in the, in the kind of, a, you know, European North Korea. So what you've heard uh, and what appeared in the focus of international media is not an exaggeration and only, I would say that among the Belarusians, this uh, perception of uh, fear and frustration like you it's hard to the belarusians got accustomed to those uh like constant terror environment in which they live and uh it's hard for them now to to surprise them with uh, certain developments or new ways of questions i would say that the most shocking thing that happened uh, after august was that there were several people uh killed Right. So like this never happened in Belarus in the broad daylight. There were the disappearance of political opponents before, but then it was sort of long forgotten, like like 20 years ago. Uh, it seemed like a distant history. And then there was no such incident where like people would be shot in the broad daylight or when there would be those uh, weird death uh, claimed by police as an accident uh, or a suicide. And then it turns out that this particular person was opposing to sign the fraudulent protocol on the uh, Poland station the night before. Uh, and then uh, that was just one thing. Another uh, major thing was how br brutally the uh, detained people were treated on purpose uh, again uh, in the beginning of the protests. And they were literally like beaten, uh, they were laying in their own blood and like beaten on purpose in the way that they won't be able to show up on the protest on the streets for the next days. Uh, and as uh, if we uh, like jump forward, what happened in the following months was that the moment the protester, the protest uh, scaled down, uh, it was the moment when Lukashenko uh, launched um, uh, repressions. Uh, to the any any uh, any um, any part of uh, Belarusian civil society, and as we uh, speak now, I would say that major uh, Belarusian NGOs they are liquidated, and again, mostly like analysts, uh, expert think tankers had to leave the country. I know personally certain uh, several people like Valeria Kostigova or uh, Tatiana Kuzina, uh, like. Analysts, they uh, consciously stayed in the country knowing that they would be arrested for their work as researchers and uh, and also like for sort of public criticism of the regime. Uh, and uh, again, as we speak now, as we uh, sort of check, uh, check the news, we would see that uh, even uh, uh, like any other uh, remaining medias are uh, claimed to be extremist and thus uh, prohibited to 
to to operate in the country journalists activists uh, uh virtually anyone who was uh one way or another active in politics they either flee the country or they're put in prison and this wave of repressions is not over and i would uh i think that one of the techniques that the regime is using now uh they would some uh like they would put some people behind the bars for sort of for years giving them like these criminal sentences and then uh with others with the remaining uh journalists or other uh, activists uh they would grab them uh keep them for for several days or weeks for administrative arrest release and then grab again uh and it also uh creates this uh, state of uncertainty when you don't when you cannot operate when like you live in Belarus you cannot continue your normal work and it also it is a great distraction uh for the Belarusian democratic forces and diasporas when they let's say when they plan their tri- uh trips or when they uh try to focus uh, on their long-term work to uh to to put external pressure on Belarus they are also constantly distracted to this news who is uh who is uh, detained now uh and who still remain who is released and uh i think like this uh, part of like this techniques by the regime they're done again on purpose to to distract uh Belarusians from other like from some sort of long-term um goals This is all very horrible and uh, I use this opportunity to express uh, deep sympathy to Belarusian people and I think it's a se- it's a sentiment that is shared for by many people in Ukraine and when I'm uh, hearing these stories when I talk to Belarusians uh, who are subject of this uh, aggression well I can say sometimes that look we had something like this under Kuchma but uh, under Yanukovych but I think we didn't have this 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 I, horrible I believe this things. is incomparable at all uh, f- and for and I I thank I, I wish to share the support you you mentioned and express and, and express and I all, and I'm happy that Katarina is with us and uh, addressing Katarina I would like to to express the the sense of solidarity what we feel about Belarus and uh, what we feel about the uh, Belarus civil society and political op- opposition just to 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 strengthen what uh, what Katarina said uh, let me let me quote to to give Ukrainian viewers and not only Ukrainian viewers some numbers uh, depicting a, t- a terrifying picture what we see uh, today in Belarus only in the past year more than 35,000 people uh, have been detained in Belarus according to the United Nations uh, tens of thousands of uh, Belarus uh, uh, citizens have fled abroad uh, f- b- the list of political prisoners now includes around 600 people uh, according to human rights uh, human um, uh, rights organization Yasna uh, For that, just simply understanding what kind of tragedy and drama we have uh, uh, in Belarus and uh, praising the spirit and the strength of Belarus people and their, um, their outstanding uh, uprising against the oppression. Uh, I believe that Ukraine should play uh, its uh, its instrumental role to help to help Belarus. Do you think we were, Ukraine was at the height? Because I, I I have an impression that Ukraine, in many aspects, lost uh, this uh, this kind of a moment, and for example, did not create uh, very fav- favorable conditions for Belarusians who are flooding this oppression to stay in Ukraine. For example, to have a dignified stay. What do you think? Ukraine. Uh, could have done more 
definitely it is important that Ukraine joined uh, the, 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 the position of the European Union and our Western partners uh, for uh, keeping the trend of not, of not recognizing the presidentship of uh, Mr. Lukashenko. But nevertheless, I believe that we could have done more and we have to do more. Um, you know, uh, recently uh, uh, I had a chance to visit Washington DC and uh, when asked there about what we think about Belarus and what we think about Belarus political opposition, uh, for my strong recommendation was to uh, ensure the warmest support for those political uh, opponents of uh, Lukashenko's regime to uh, show the solidarity and to give as, uh, you know, to show this kind, some kind of light at the end of tunnel for uh, Belarus political opposition. I'm really happy that uh, Svetlana Tsikhanovska was received not only by State Secretary Blinken and his team, but also by uh, President Joe Biden. It's a strong message. Uh, Tsikhanovska was also received and had important meetings with Chancellor Merkel and with the French president. I believe that President Zelensky has to meet uh, of uh, uh, Svetlana Tsikhanovska and her uh, absolutely fantastic team that I admire. You mentioned this uh, international view. Let me now address to Andrew because it's very important. Uh, on the one hand, what Danilo is saying that uh, when Biden and Merkel are meeting a Belarusian opposition leader who, who we have all the grounds to believe who have won on the presidential election, but on the other hand, uh, is there really an understanding uh, of, of these things that Katerina, for example, mentioned? Is there a discourse in, in the Western countries? Is Belarus visible? Because sometimes I have the impression that, okay, media uh, turned so much attention uh, during these protests, but then Belarus, as Ukraine was before, is going out of the radars. And probably our task is to keep it on the radars as far as we can. So, Andrew, what do you think? Well, ironically, Belarus has been much more on the radar since um, August uh, of last year, uh, obviously for all the wrong reasons. And perceptions dramatically changed before and after 2020. Before 2020, um, the West's perception was mainly that Belarus was changing because of foreign policy needs. That since 2014, it was the Lukashenko regime's survival calculations changed dramatically. They didn't want to be victim of the same kind of Russian pressures and Ukraine was. So they diversified a little bit in foreign policy, uh, outreach rather than balance. Uh, there was some limited domestic liberalization. Uh, there was a rational economic strategy under Prime Minister Rumas, slimming the state sector, allowing the private sector, particularly the IT economy, to grow. So with all of that, there were opportunities for EU engagement. So what's happened since? Well, can a dictator uh, execute a 180-degree handbrake turn, you know, and head off in completely the other direction? I guess there is this default position in Brussels in particular, hoping that some of those post-2014 trends still survive. But every sign is that they don't, because if change was driven by foreign policy after 2014, now everything is driven by coercion. Right? 
uh, and two previous speakers have rightly given some of the numbers. This is this is the worst repression in Europe since the end of the Cold War. Numerically, it's worse than the repression of solidarity under martial law. I mean, it bears some similarities in terms of imprisonment and exile, uh, but numerically, it's much, much, much bigger. Uh, and the EU is struggling, I think, to cope with that and respond to it. And as with Ukraine in 2014, most of the serious sanctions that were slapped on Belarus came after the hijacking of the Ryanair plane, just as in Ukraine, it was the shooting down of MH17, an event that kind of forced a reaction out of um, Brussels in particular. Um, so you have a morally bankrupt coercive state. Could it get worse? Well, yes, it could. Um, you could also see a kind of economically failed state with the elite only concerned with its own survival. You're seeing an increasing trend towards kind of family redistvo, um, sort of um, family takeover of the remaining profitable bits of the Belarusian economy. And of course, we don't know the price of Russian support yet. Plus, uh, Lukashenko seems to be trying out Richard Nixon's madman theory in foreign policy. Famously, Nixon said, if, if people are scared of me, if, if I'm unpredictable, then that's a kind of foreign policy asset. Um, and foreign policy seems to be driven by the Baroque craziness of Belarusian TV since August 2020, which has imported all these ludicrous conspiracy theories. I mean, you've had four coups, four coups against Lukashenko since August 2020. Stories, you know, not real coups. Um, and organized human trafficking over the border into Lithuania, you know, it, it, it deliberately to create problems and to show Europe, you know, just what a what a crazy guy he can be. Um, so the EU, I think, is struggling really to calibrate the sheer seriousness of all this and, and the fact that it can get even worse. Uh, and its belated sanctions came about really because of, to answer your question, Belarus was on the radar, albeit briefly, um, uh, and because of the Ryanair hijack. Thank you, Andrea. And I think uh, our our task is to keep it on the radar and uh, to to talk about it as as often as we can to international community and to our, for example, Ukrainian community. Let's now turn to Ukraine. And before we turn to Ukraine, I would. Uh, ask our listeners if you have questions please write down them into the into the chat and my colleagues will transfer them to me so that we could ask our speakers uh, coming back to ukraine and ukraine security we holding this event in, in with kiev security forum so uh do you have the impression Danilo, that uh, we have more and more vacuum of security in ukraine first for example belarus in which despite um, aside of these absolutely catastrophic situation for Belarusian people, uh, for, uh, for human rights. We have all this situation for us, for Ukraine, uh, the danger of this creation of this, I mean, consolidation of this union state. And uh, at a certain point, Russian military troops on Belarusian-Ukrainian border, not only on Russian-Ukrainian border. Uh, another trend that we have seen recently is a part of this Nord Stream game and, and some this agreement between Joe Biden and Angela Merkel and US and Germany, which sparked lots of frustration in Ukraine and, and justly so. 
also Nord Stream as a security problem for Ukraine, right? It's something if, if Ukraine loses this gas transportation capacity, it can it's much more vulnerable in terms of uh, security aggression. So do you have this impression of an increasing lack of security of Ukraine? Uh, definitely we witness a number of very concerning, the very worrying the trends that endanger not only Ukraine's security, and this is the most important point that I wish to make. Uh, it's a mistake to speak only about Ukraine while speaking about security, in my opinion. Definitely everything we see, including the Nord Stream 2 story, uh, endangers the overall European security, and not only of European, but Euro-Atlantic as well. Uh, f uh, I believe that, that the decision to, comp to complete the Nord Stream 2 pro project is a mistake, and it might appear as a huge blow to the presidency of Joe Biden and to the uh, Atlantic interest uh, uh, aimed at ensuring uh, a strong and united Europe, not being dependent on the, uh, on the Russian resources. Uh, for, for that, I, I, for, for, let me tell you that I belong to those who um, strongly opposed the idea of uh, uh, completing the, the of, uh, of Nord Stream 2, and I remain so. On another hand, I would say that uh, we uh, are used to speak about Ukraine's and European security standing on this very negative track. We definitely have to speak about the worrying symptoms that we see, but also we have to rem remember that for, for seven years already, Ukraine has not only survived, but succeeded in dattering the Russia's aggression. And uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is a phenomenon, phenomenon which uh, uh, should be not uh, underestimated. R Ukraine was and remains strong. And Ukraine gives a good, a a good example to other nations of the, of the region. Uh, when we, we talked about Belarus, when we, are when we will talk about Moldova and Georgia, we should remember that uh, uh, speaking about the peculiarities of our, of our uh, situation, situations, uh, we definitely have to remember that Russia stands behind every conflict in these nations. And for that, I believe the most important message that, which, can, uh, which can be brought about from uh, this uh, uh, discussion as well is that the West should give up any illusion of resetting the Russian relations. I have the impression that this is a kind of a game of Western leaders, you know. Uh, at a certain point we see Emmanuel Macron who is trying to, you know, to reset the relations with Russia. Then he kind of uh, disappoints with this idea. We would be telling him to be disappointed at the very beginning. Now we have Joe Biden, probably, who is uh, in this trap. At the, at the early stages of presidency, you know, every Western leader is trying to do this kind of reach out. Definitely, we may speak about any types of games that uh, big boys can play. But I don't understand why these games are played at cost of Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia, to put it bluntly. Nevertheless, I also see another danger when we talk about the uh, complexity of the international relations and the, 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 uh, and the number of and the variety of international challenges uh, which are being faced by our Western partners and Ukraine and uh, Ukraine as well, that we have a danger of you know of getting of uh, of being trapped into some kind of 
anti-Western uh, way of thinking, saying that, you know, this is a plot and to be uh, betrayed. It is far from that. Definitely, we have to become strong. We have to do a lot to, be, to, 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 uh, of, uh, to improve the performance of our systems and, and so on. But, uh, uh, f uh, and we have a right and we have a need to advocate our interest talking to our Western partners. But the most important thing, in my opinion, is to ensure that we do not, uh, 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 there is not a daylight between us and uh, our strategic allies in the West. I think you're absolutely right. And in Ukraine, we have certain politicians who are trying to, you know, to play all all these frustrations saying that look the west has betrayed it's a you russian russian attempt and i believe that the, some kind of russian uh, way of thinking russia russia's school of thinking stands behind this way of uh, uh, presenting things let's uh, develop this security topic and i would like to address hanna shellist who is one of the best ukrainian security experts and hanna let's continue this question that we raised with danilo so do you have the impression that Ukraine is now facing with uh, decreasing, even more decreasing, we always face with the kind of uh, this vacuum of security, with even more decreasing security, with even more risks. Uh, the risks are the same. The question is how we deal with them. And do we minimize them or do we provoke them? Let's be honest about it. And uh, here, um, I can't say that we're in the security vacuum because unfortunately, both our adversaries and ourselves are filling this vacuum. The question is that, uh, unfortunately, not always we are filling it um, in terms of balance with the positive uh, arguments. So definitely we have the positive developments like the agreement with the United Kingdom, for example, and uh, what we expect from the last year's strategic partnership agreement, support to the Navy, uh, etc or the uh, uh, positive development that we have due to the sea breeze exercises or the coherent resilience exercises that we would have in uh, uh, September this year. So that is like uh, uh, that part of the way where we have the positive uh, uh, signs. At the same time, uh, um, unfortunately, not always Ukraine is accumulating on it. So uh, definitely we are reforming the army, we are doing certain uh, uh, developments inside of the country, we are proud of it. And then we have uh, statements um, of some members of the parliament, for example, of some politicians that can just by one statement uh, ruin the trust with our strategic partners. And here is always will be the question, what is more important when you have the security concerns? the trust in your partners or just the money that you're receiving from that. Uh, it's easier to receive money than to gain the trust, especially in the crisis situation. So uh, that's why I can say that we have decreasing security in the region. We have just um, chaotic security in the region. And that is the problem because security is something that we built for quite a long um, a time for sure. But at the same time, it's definitely, it looks like we are back again what type of security is important for us. What make that ephemeric word security, uh, especially when we speak about the Eastern Partnership region. Let's be honest, uh, for many years we talked about energy security, economic security, social security. Then we again return back to the classical hard security with the war. Uh, in Georgia in 2008 with the annexation of Crimea with the recent uh, um, 
uh, clashes that we had uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia, not only before last year, but the event that happening just this night, again, the clashes uh, between these two countries. So we talked about these classical foreign security paid attention predominantly to um, it. Uh, and, then, and then again, we started to understand that maybe political security it is that thing that can influence both our social security, human security, and classical security. Because what is happening in Belarus, what we could expect in Moldova, but luckily um, elections prevented that development in that. What we unfortunately are seen in Georgia since uh, the last election, that is the questions of political security, but they are influencing national security that much that the threats and risks are becoming not less uh, dangerous than the uh, uh, Russian aggression, for example, because in this way we have all chances to uh, ruin the countries from inside and making it incapable of dealing with the uh, uh, hard security, with the classical security, with the uh, uh, foreign adversary that we have. And uh, um, all these conflicts, that is probably what is making the reality of nowadays. That's why I'm naming it as the chaotic security. Because on one hand, we are increasing security, but by the other hand, uh, uh, due to the different reasons in all six countries of the Eastern Partnership, but we are decreasing our internal capacities and capabilities uh, for guaranteeing the national security uh, of the country. And uh, that is the biggest challenge, probably, uh, for all six countries. The question is, which country is ready to work uh, with these new challenges? Which country prioritizes what type of the security at the uh, current stage? And uh, uh, that is probably that none of the six countries are ready to uh, uh, reply. Even uh, the country with the, um, if we may say, like this, the softest security situation, as for now, Moldova, uh, let's be honest, these elections demonstrated that Transnistrian threat had been almost forgotten. So uh, the country decided to concentrate on the political security and the societal security, uh, choosing the foreign policy of future that um, they can expect bring more security for the country and development for sure. And uh, they decided to close their eyes to what is happening in the uh, um, breakaway region. So as a result, uh, what demonstrated other um, cases that when we're closing the eyes to one of the uh, uh, security threats, unfortunately, in several years, it always have a possibility to be um, uh, evoked again, to be developed again, but this time by our um, adversaries. And as we know, that uh, what Russian Federation is doing, except of the open aggression in case of some of the countries, but uh, they are the best not in the open aggression. The best they are in using the weaknesses that we have inside of the countries to securitize them, to uh, make them as dangerous as possible, to get attention only to them, and through these to destabilize the countries. So as soon as we are not uh, responding to the uh, uh, some of the threats and risks that we have uh, in domestic uh, agenda, we are definitely giving more and more chances for the Russian Federation um, to use these weaknesses uh, in their policies against our countries. And uh, that is definitely it's demonstrated all six countries. It's perfectly demonstrated by Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, and recently Belarus. 
because also uh, what was seen as the stability in some way it was the weakness of uh, Belarus because uh, everybody started to forget uh, what those repressions that 10 years ago Belarus already seen uh, are mean. So as a result, it was easy um, to use the fears of Mr. Lukashenko to evoke those fears uh, to bring us to the situation we are uh, now. So for each of the country, we can find these weaknesses that uh, easily can be used, despite definitely the new challenges that we have. And uh, I, I think that just for the sake of the uh, time, I'm not going to speak about cybersecurity that is bringing chaotic uh, to us. It is the information security, not only from that old propaganda, but what we've seen during the COVID, uh, when we are destabilizing the uh, health security, the human security of the country through um, evoking different myths and propaganda about uh, uh, vaccination, for example, or about COVID itself. So uh, the second the trend, except of the chaotic, and it will be my conclusion, is probably the increased intermix and interdependence of different security threats and risks that uh, we are having now, and uh, uh, the necessity to see security in the comprehensive way. Otherwise, we always have a possibility to miss the small leak that can bring the water to our ship. Thank you very much, Hanna. Um, we are now turning back to the studio. Hanna mentioned this very important thing that Russia is probably, well, uh, is of course an aggressor, but it's very keen at using the weaknesses of, of countries. Let's now talk about the occupied territories, right, in Ukraine, about Donbass and Crimea. So we don't see the hot war there, although we were in the spring, we were talking about this huge number of Russian troops on Ukrainian border. But uh, every now and then, of course, we see <coughs> the news of Ukrainian soldiers being killed. But at the same time, there is something less visible going on there. For example, increased passportization of people in the Donbass, which also turns to the fact that people with Russian passports already dragged into Russia, territory of Russia to, to participate in Russian elections. So what are the trends in the occupied territories and what are the threats there? Definitely Russia uses the weakness and the problems in different nations. No one would argue the fact. For many years that was a feature, a signature feature of the Russian policy uh, during the Soviet times as well. And uh, uh, in, uh, in the fight between the West and the Soviet Union, the Soviet ideology was focused on using the weak sides of uh, the Western system and the Western mentality. But it doesn't mean that this type of policy can lead Russia to the, to the victory, and it doesn't mean that Russia would, will succeed. For me, this is important to understand while speaking about the future and the, the, the general picture if, in the region. Um, you said that the situation in, in the east of Ukraine is dangerous, however, it is not a hot war. 14,000 people have been killed since 2014. Uh, every day we suffer uh, the killings of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians. Uh, there, were more, there were around 9,000 ceasefire violations only in January, March 2021. I mean, and also taking into account what you said about Russian passports given to the Ukrainian citizens in Donbas. We definitely see that 
uh, Russia undermined the Minsk agreements, uh, presenting this case as an empty document which cannot lead us to any type of peace, long-lasting peace. And uh, we have to be frank, talking to Ukrainian society and to our Western partners, saying that unfortunately, everything what Russia did is, as it proved, that the Minsk agreements cannot produce a long-lasting solution to the, uh, to the aggression uh, Ukraine suffered uh, from, from, the, from the Kremlin. Um, uh, being an optimist, unfortunately, I have to recognize that I don't see any kind of optimistic perspective uh, for, to settle the situation uh, in the nearest perspective. Uh, and for that, as we talk about uh, Eastern Europe and as we talk about Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia, all other nations that became a target for uh, Russia's aggression, we have to, uh, in my opinion, to suggest uh, some type of common thinking, common vision, how to approach the West, how to approach our strategic partners, uh, for, uh, presenting a comprehensive vision, how to um, exercise additional pressure on Russia in order to uh, force the aggressor to peace, force to uh, yet uh, forced to, 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 to the solution of the conflicts Russia started in our lands. Instead of resetting relations with Russia, which is an illusion, in my opinion, it is highly important to find the way both for the United States and the European Union to reset the, the thinking, the vision, how to settle the conflicts in Belarus, in Ukraine, in Moldova, in Transnistria, um, and, and, and in, in Georgia. Uh, I believe that uh, um, there is a room for uh, elaborating such a plan. Thank you, Danilo. And uh, let me again address to Hanna. Uh, let's try to, uh, to elaborate on this issue of occupied territories and probably with the focus both on Donbass and Crimea and move further to a, a broader if we talk about Crimea, broader Black Sea region. So what are the trends in the Black Sea region? How do you see them? For example, uh, what are the consequences, uh, increasing consequences of the occupation of Crimea in terms of uh, maritime situation, security situation, and uh, an interesting player, Turkey, how it influences Eastern Europe and uh, is it an antidote to Russian influences? It is a partner of Russia. How do you see it? Let's start from Turkey. Uh, it's neither partner nor the antidote. Turkey always had, first of all, pro-Turkish position, especially with the current president. And uh, uh, the main, uh, um, let's say, red line for the Turkish policy it is how its relations with other countries would not ruin their uh, vision of the policy and the place of Turkey in the region. And here, definitely, we understand that Turkey would balance between Ukraine and Russia as much as possible. Still, we understand perfectly that there are certain questions which are principal for them. And it is, for example, the rights of the Crimean Tatars, because it is about Turkic people. That is about uh, more of the solidarity that is extremely important. 
But at the same time, uh, if Turkey has a possibility not to ruin relations with Russia, um, they will keep it uh, till the very last minute. So uh, that is the question of the uh, um, practicality. Probably let's uh, use this word. And uh, that it is the question of choosing in terms of security, economy, energy, and trying to be somewhere in between all these topics. So as for now, Turkey is balancing. And uh, uh, it is the question of Ukraine and other partners in the Black Sea region. How much can we take Turkey to our side? How many interesting projects we can propose Turkey so they will feel interest in uh, continuation of such uh, relations. And definitely we see now a lot of projects with Turkey in terms of security, um, in terms of military technical cooperation. The same is doing Romania in the triangle Poland, Romania, Turkey. Um, the same is happening uh, with the Azerbaijan and uh, uh, October of war between Azerbaijan and Armenia really demonstrated uh, that Turkey uh, is ready to get against Russian Federation when it is uh, uh, their vital interest. But at the same time, I would not put at the Turkey as the uh, um, ultimate uh, or the main player in the Black Sea region in terms of all these uh, um, annexations and the conflicts that Russia is uh, provoking. But uh, if we speak about the, uh, what is happening in Crimea and how it is influencing the wider security, um, that is quite an interesting element that we need to pay attention at. Uh, except of the militarization, and that is a normal trend that Russia has been using in all occupied uh, or supported territories, that uh, for quite a time uh, in the beginning, the militarization process is happening. Uh, but uh, what we uh, see in the land in uh, uh, South Ossetia and uh, what we now um, uh, can witness in the sea in terms of Ukraine, it is uh, the spreading of the occupation. It is uh, that attempt of taking yet a little bit. So they're never satisfied with the territory they already control it. So even case of uh, um, Georgia, we had this term scrapping modernization, so meaning that uh, that administrative line all the time, we see the uh, movements of the uh, uh, border lines and what is happening, they're very dangerous. Now, you always think, oh, just 20 meters, what it changes. But 20 meters after 20 meters, and when you have just 30 kilometers to the capital, that is quite a dangerous development. So in Crimea, it is even more dangerous because what Russia is doing now, they are trying to set the effective control of the territorial waters around Crimea. And not only 12 miles of the territorial waters, but in some cases, they even claim the exclusive economic zone, what is up to 200 uh, miles um, around the uh, Crimea. And in this case, you can understand how it is disturbed navigation, fishery, uh, and uh, uh, plenty of, uh, not speaking about the security, because definitely we can look into the map and to see what is the narrow line uh, between uh, Crimea and, for example, uh, Kherson region, uh, or uh, what is the distance to uh, entrance to the Nikolaev port. So it is extremely uh, close. And uh, that is uh, what is happening. That is their argumentation. They are trying to balance in terms of international law. So both manipulating with it, uh, uh, but at the same time pretending that they're um, everything in line, uh, like nobody can blame us that we're doing something wrong. 
That is, for example, when we are talking about the uh, provocations against the uh, uh, navy ships, again, the border security ships uh, uh, during their trainings in the Black Sea region. So as for now, we are definitely witnessing this scrapping um, occupation of the territorial waters around Crimea that uh, uh, would be continued. We saw it with the incident uh, with the British ship. And for us, that is extremely important to attract as much attention as possible to this and uh, um, uh, of all our partners, as many partners as possible, because we understand that the Ukrainian Navy capacity is not enough uh, to control the situation by ourselves. So that is definitely where, thanks to British ships, American ships, uh, waiting for the next uh, Dutch ships, that is what we had from just recent. And uh, uh, that is, by the way, the question where we are waiting for the Turkish support. Because we understand very well that um, uh, for many years, Turkey and Russia have been speaking that the Black, uh, Black Sea is the uh, a sea for the literal state that only six literal states should guarantee uh, its security. And it was the shared position of Ankara and Moscow. So now it's definitely time for Turkey to demonstrate uh, what they meant, that they're ready uh, not to allow any violations, um, not only due to the Montreux Convention, which is important for them, but also with the developments like what Russia is doing around Crimea now. Thank you very much, Hanna. Thank you for this really 3D picture of what's happening in, in Black Sea region and what's happening around the occupation of Crimea. Let's now move to Caucasus and now we'll address Sergei Kapanadze. Sergei, thanks so much for joining this conversation and uh, for waiting for so long uh, for your turn. But uh, it's really important for us to talk about the Caucasus as a region. Uh, uh, I, I would ask you to enumerate uh, the key trends in your region and maybe also focus on Georgia, but not only. What would be the key trends over the past, uh, I would say, several, several years? Thank you. Well, it was quite interesting to listen to all of you, so um, I've spent time well. Um, it's not an easy question, uh, Vladimir, because uh, there have been uh, different trends. But I think uh, I can uh, put them together in maybe a few points. I think one issue that has been rather worrisome, but it's not only peculiar to the Caucasus, I think it's peculiar to the whole Eastern Partnership region, is this trend towards authoritarians. And uh, I think that uh, the problem with our bigger region, the Eastern Partnership region, is that we have these trends that are taking a place in one country and then in another one. And these trends are always out of sync. So you have some bad news coming from Moldova and then it switches to good news, like it was last time during the elections. We have similar in Ukraine. We had some good news in Georgia in 2012-13. Now it's going back to extremely bad news. So we have this, uh, I would say, reverse towards authoritarianism. Um, and uh, um, uh, the most worrisome there is the using of a Russian playbook. Just to um, showcase this, I'll just give you one episode, just happened just a few uh, uh, days ago. Um, one morning, a few days ago, we saw the streets of Tbilisi full of posters. And on the posters, there were the opposition politicians, media owners, uh, gay activists, civil society activists. And they were all dubbed as the enemies of the government. So it gives you, a, a, it, it is straight out of the Russian playbook. And unfortunately, we see this now in Georgia. 
Um, now, there are obviously some good, better news coming from, from Armenia, where we had uh, elections uh, just a few uh, weeks uh, ago. And uh, I think the society there has spoken in favor of a certain uh, process. Uh, but once again, I think it, is, uh, it will be a mistake for all of us to uh, focus on the good news and think that this is the irreversible trend. I believe the problem we all have is that when the, the, the good things happen in terms of democratization or in terms of bigger security, um, it's, uh, they're illusory in terms of uh, being very susceptible to, to being reversed. I think that is what, what we have seen in Georgia. We have been on a good run, so to say, including the change of leadership in 2012. But since then, we've had, I would say, a rather dramatic uh, setback in terms of democracy and in terms of security as well. So I think that is one uh, um, uh, thing that has been taking place. And there, obviously, you cannot um, uh, not mention the role of the oligarchy, because that's the big problem we have now here the oligarch running the show, similar to what happened in, in, in Moldova with Mr. Plachotnik being in charge until then, obviously, he was ousted. The other one is the um, a strengthening of the Russian presence. And uh, that strengthening of the Russian presence is not only in terms of their uh, domination in the occupied territories, uh, but also within the society. And uh, we now see the, the upsurge of the uh, pro-Russian groups uh, who have embraced the nationalistic, uh, xenophobic uh, rhetoric, uh, who are very strongly supported by the church, who will be playing a role in the upcoming elections too. So that is a new trend. Um, the trend that uh, uh, is now extremely dominant here in Georgia. Uh, and I would say that if this trend proves to be successful, I wouldn't exclude that to be then translated and used also in the other countries of the Eastern Partnership. It has been used on a number of occasions in the other countries, uh, but um, uh, it will depend on the success uh, here. So I would say that is the second trend. Russia has been uh, more assertive and more uh, influential here. And if you ask me about the third trend, I would uh, uh, go back and quote that what Danilo said about the strategic indecisiveness of uh, the West. And I think uh, one uh, uh, trend we have seen here is that West has, um, I wouldn't say failed, uh, because that would be too dramatic, but I would say has uh, not used the power it has uh, in terms of conditionality uh, towards Georgia in the last years. And I would also say that it is uh, also true for the other countries of the uh, Caucasus. Now, uh, unlike the other countries, maybe in the Caucasus, uh, uh, one thing that is peculiar to Georgia is that we still have a high percentage of population who is very pro-Western, pro-EU and pro-NATO. And that is probably the biggest asset that the West has here in this country, as well as the democratic forces within this country. But then um, um, if, you, if, if the West, if the European Union and the United States in particular is not using the conditionality, it can use, whether it is the positive conditionality in terms of um, giving something uh, better, let's say, in terms of the integration into the NATO and the EU, or whether it's the negative conditionality in terms of sanctioning. I would even go as far as sanctioning then I think uh, the chances of the progress in this region uh, are becoming slimmer and slimmer. Um, so I would say that these are the three trends uh, that have been observed here. Now, the things that has happened uh, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh have also showed that we also Sergei, have let's, let's Sorry, yes. I interrupt you. Let's turn to Nagorno-Karabakh a little bit later. Sure. Uh, uh, 
It's very good that you made this point that, you know, uh, it's naive to believe that after certain revolutions, for example, in Georgia, in, in Armenia, in Ukraine, in, in Moldova, we, in, in all these countries, except for Azerbaijan, probably, we have this, you know, uprising, but it's naive to believe that it, it becomes irreversible. It's one of these interesting trends in, in our region that it is kind of a circular movement, and the question is, so it's ups and downs, and the question is, if it's leading forward at all, uh, and if after each, let's say, crackdown or reaction uh, against uh, progressive movements, um, it is some progress ahead. But let's uh, turn again to, your, to Caucasus countries, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. Some, you mentioned these common trends. What are the differences? Because sometimes it seems that the countries are increasingly becoming different. What do you think? Oh, they are extremely different. I think. I don't even think you can talk about the Caucasus as a region. Um, there's so many differences uh, here. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, when I talk about Georgia, I'd rather put Georgia in the context of the Eastern Partnership countries and then the so-called trio format with the Moldova and Ukraine, um, rather than with Armenia and Azerbaijan because of the uh, extreme differences between, between the three. Um, I think uh, one com common uh, trait between Georgia and, uh, Georgia and Armenia was the um, movement towards democratic processes um, in terms of the popular, um, I wouldn't call it uprising, but in terms of the population speaking. Um, uh, but once again, I think um, uh, trends have reversed, for instance, uh, in Georgia. Um, uh, to put it uh, uh, in a different way, if you want to um, uh, if you want to visualize the countries of the Eastern Partnership on the uh, um, uh, uh, Lukashenko Maya Sandu scale, uh, continuum, I would say. I, would say I, I, I say Lukashenko because of kind of the bottom. Uh, you can't really go. Be you can go below that, but in this region, it has been the bottom. And Maya Sandu because of the recent things in Moldova. So you know, I, I'll give her credit uh, uh, at this point. If you put it there. I would say that uh, Georgia has slipped down towards Lukashenko, then up towards that kind of uh, sandal point. Uh, and, and so I think uh, um, you can also put the others uh, on, on that map, so to say. And I think Armenia would be going a bit up. Azerbaijan probably would be going a bit down, or rather not a bit, but maybe a, a lot more down. And so I think that, so Vladimir, uh, um, when I say about the irreversibility, that irreversibility uh, is not there, it's actually quite reversible. I would say that Georgia is uh, a very good, uh, or rather very bad uh, case uh, in question. Just in the recent days, we had the government withdrew from a political agreement mediated by the president of the European Council a few months ago. Uh, they officially withdrew yesterday, said that this agreement, this political agreement is not binding on them anymore. Uh, we've had the pogroms of the journalists on July the 5th. So these are the things that would have been unimaginable here uh, a few years ago, but they are actually imaginable here now. Uh, and so a lot of people are worried about what will become uh, of the country uh, later this year uh, if they win uh, the local elections the way they won the last elections. I mean, I mean the government, whether there will be the attacks against media or the media will be closed down. Uh, we've seen for the first time in the last few uh, months, European Union making the statement that the judicial appointments are so worrisome that they are going to suspend the financial assistance to Georgia. So, you know, so once again, Georgia has been a, a kind of a darling child of, of the West in this bigger region, but it's not that anymore. Um, and so um, this is extremely worrying. But going back to your question of comparisons, I think that the three countries are so different from each other that it's actually very hard to compare them other than, you know, you visualizing them on this scale of uh, Lukashenko-Sandu. They just 
uh, impromptu invented a few seconds ago. It's a very good scale, actually, for, for analyzing it. I wonder what, uh, what Mr. Zelensky would be on this scale, but that would be another question to Danilo. Let's turn to this uh, Nagorno-Karabakh war. It's, it's already one of the also very important events uh, for the region. What, what, what do you see as the, as, the, as the deeper consequences of this and maybe uh, events that are, that are going on right now? Uh, well... I think one big consequence is that the, the balance of power has shifted dramatically in the region. Uh, Azerbaijan is now uh, more assertive and stronger than ever. Uh, Armenia, I would say, uh, feels down on its knees, and Turkey has uh, gained leverage uh, in the region. But I think most importantly and most worrisome for us is that by virtue of Russian participation in the mediation and their presence on the ground through the, through the peacekeepers, I think Russia is now uh, as assertive as ever uh, in the Caucasus. And I think one thing, the one consequence, one outcome of this uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, situation is that West is nowhere to be seen. I mean, unless you consider Turkey to be part of West, but in this particular context, uh, I would not do it that way. So I think uh, what has happened here is that it all happened without the EU, without the United States, only with the participation of the, of the regional powers. And that is something that suits Russia extremely well. That is their dream scenario also in the Eastern Europe in terms of uh, Ukraine or the other or the other countries where they want to solve the regional issues to their own advantage without the participation um, uh, of the big Western powers. And so I think uh, the West has missed out on this. But once again, uh, it is a peculiarity of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict why this happened, because West was not involved in it uh, already uh, when the conflict started out. So that's one of the reasons why that was the case, probably the major reason. Uh, but uh, I would not exclude that uh, Russia will attempt to have a similar scenarios elsewhere, uh, once again, by excluding West completely from the, uh, from the processes. Thank you, Sergei. I will now turn the same question to Hanna Shales. So what, what are the, the uh, global consequences of Nagorno-Karabakh war? And do you agree with Sergei's estimation that the West was pushed out of the region and uh, both Russia and Turkey secured, strengthened their positions in the region? Uh, you know, to be pushed out, you need to have an interest to be in. And it seems to me that uh, the West lost interest to Nagorno-Karabakh some years ago. And uh, different reasons uh, for different countries why it's happened. But we've seen both the United States and France uh, slowly but smoothly getting out. And it was seen not only within the Minsk group, uh, uh, but within other processes as well. So less and less interesting in the last five years except of probably some commercial projects, but, uh, but not more. And uh, definitely when the event, when the war started uh, um, in October, and even before uh, with the July 2020 incidents, uh, not uh, for the Nagorno-Karabakh, but at the border between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, we saw how slowly these three chairs of the men's group uh, um, were preparing their first statements, how weird these statements been, and de facto, those who've been seen as the mediators for the last almost 20 years, they haven't taken this role. And uh, especially in October, they just allowed the Russian Federation and Turkey to play their roles over there. Um, why we can say that maybe elections uh, in the United States play their roles, 
maybe it is because the European Union were not ready as they hoped France would do. We can definitely speculate why it's happened. But the fact is that um, the West didn't try to do anything for autumn last year uh, to keep, uh, really to keep Azerbaijan and Armenia, at least in terms of the conflict, uh, within the uh, uh, possibilities of the Western countries. So uh, uh, definitely uh, what's surprised and what consequences we see, it's not the increasing role of the Russian Federation. It's already had quite a strong position uh, not only with Armenia, as we used to think in Nagorno-Karabakh that Russia and Armenia, it is a lie, uh, there are lies, and that is the most important. But for the last uh, several years, Azerbaijan-Russian relations have been very well developed. We just uh, um, preferred not to notice some of the developments over there, but that definitely happened. For experts, it was not a surprise. So uh, for Russia, everything as they could. Uh, they just managed to put the boots on the ground where they wanted. But Turkey, it was real surprise because it is for the first time when Turkey openly came to the Caucasus, not just supporting Azerbaijan as they did before, politically, diplomatically, with some economic support. But when we saw that some military experts even say that Azerbaijan won um, predominantly because of the Turkish military support of drones, because it was the first war where drones played a crucial role for the uh, military development. And uh, that, that is the issue. What will be now? So uh, um, the Turkey was excluded a little bit from the peace agreement. Um, will Turkey allow it to continue? Will Turkey increase its presence uh, over there? Uh, will it lead, by the way, to the Turkish-Russian confrontation? Because we know that the vision uh, was very different in Ankara and of, of, uh, in Moscow about the future developments and the future arrangements in Caucasus. So can it be the new knot of knot uh, um, of confrontation between uh, Turkey and Russia, as we have in Syria and about Ukraine? So probably, as for now, we have more questions about the long-term consequences. Now we can see only the short-term consequences of the developments uh, there. And uh, uh, about the global, I would not put it that far. But definitely, it may have uh, um, uh, impacts uh, for the uh, Caucasus and Caspian region. Because uh, for the Black Sea region, it's not changing the situation that much. Thank you very much, Hanna. And we're coming back to the studio. So, Danilo, what do you think? What is your take on these issues? Uh, First of all, let me say that how impressive is our discussion because we right now we we literally see how many interests we have and and how f impressive is the landscape we talk about. You know, coming from Belarus, uh, ending up in, in the Caucasus. So let me get to the Caucasus and get back to Belarus and to what we can do about the region. First of all, the Caucasus still remains the region which is being often. Uh, overlooked, not only by the West, but uh, Ukraine itself. However, this is the strategi strategically important region. And for instance, looking at Azerbaijan, we understand that this is the only exit for oil and gas from Central Asia bypassing Russia and Iran. Uh, if we speak about other countries in the region, we uh, definitely will uh, see how important is the role of Georgia uh, for, uh, in the general trends of uh, our part of Europe. And uh, also uh, we understand uh, uh, the significance of uh, 
establishing some kind of new concept of relations with Armenia. Unfortunately, Armenia for many years has, has not been, uh, uh, I would say, a member of uh, those countries that strongly supported Ukraine uh, for, in our efforts to deter Russia's aggression. Unfortunately, Armenia joined uh, the club of Russia uh, even uh, for, at the United Nation, Nations General Assembly voting on uh, 104 uh, uh, 100, uh, UN 100 resolution uh, for, to support uh, Ukraine and the, the Ukrainian uh, territorial integrity. Nevertheless, I believe that uh, there are, and uh, what I understand from what the other experts say, that we may find uh, some new signs of uh, uh, the possible uh, recovery of the American and the Western interest to uh, uh, strengthen their presence and strengthen their performance in, in that part of uh, uh, Europe, in, in that part of the world. So, but getting back to the Black Sea region and getting back to our national interest, our common national interest, I believe, I presume. Uh, let me tell you that listening to our colleagues, I have found myself in the position of producing some kind of a plan that could be a guide uh, for not pretending that it would be an exhaustive one but nevertheless it's it's a plan that can be some kind uh, can produce some kind some kind of uh, guidelines uh, to to move forward first i understand that we have to stick together since we have a lot of common threats dangers and and challenges as well as we think about common perspectives so uh, to stick together for that, I support the initiatives which were officially presented by, uh, by Kyiv, by Ukraine's foreign minister and uh, uh, Ukrainian authorities to get together, the, for, as they call it, the association trio uh, to, to, to work uh, for uh, some common uh, goals and, and uh, aspirations. Uh, talking about the, these aspirations, definitely we will highlight the most important parts, first of all, that our countries want to become EU and, I presume, NATO members. And also that we have the common security threat possessed by, uh, for, uh, by Russia and the aggressive uh, Kremlin's uh, policy, which is not going to be changed. So uh, here, we are, in my opinion, uh, we have to um, work hard and to, uh, uh, to move forward with further discussions of this kind to accumulate the, uh, I will say, the, the new ideas, the new thinking, how we can, all of us, how can we move forward. Point number two. Uh, um, while speaking about the Black Sea region, uh, for, uh, I definitely cannot but mention the upcoming visit of President Zelensky to Washington, D.C. I believe it would be reasonable to raise the matters uh, which Hanna Shalos advocates so strongly about the Black Sea uh, region cooperation with our American partners. I also hope, let, let present it as my belief, that there is a reasonable necessity to have the, uh, to have the, uh, the, the, the Black Sea thinking 
incorporated in the bilateral documents that Ukraine and the United States, states uh, for, uh, uh, might sign during uh, President Zelensky's visit uh, to uh, the United States. Uh, I believe that the security of agreement which is on the table today and, uh, for, and is in the process of being prepared uh, uh, also will incorporate some kind of understanding how should we all enhance and strengthen our security and defense uh, in Black Sea, Black sea region. But not only that. Look, if we speak about Eastern Europe, we always we are used to speak about big powers, uh, you know, big games uh, of, uh, of, um, uh, of in this context of undergoing and uh, for producing new ideas. But we also have we also I believe have to look at our immediate Western partners like Poland, uh, Romania, Hungary, and others. Uh, uh, suggesting our common position uh, for, to aim at uh, bringing us closer to the institution and regional uh, for cooperation that uh, uh, is being uh, developed by these nations, including the Three Seas initiatives. So I believe it, it is quite a natural thing to have this infrastructure cooperation to be strengthened and to have a strong link between the Three Seas Initiative and uh, Black Sea region and the Caucasus. And in this sense, in this context, Ukraine should play its vital instrumental role. Uh, not becoming a mentor of the process, but becoming an equal partner and a humble partner who will try to do its best to accommodate the interest of our uh, friends and partners, both uh, to our north and to, uh, to our south. Uh, for Ukraine, as I love to repeat, Ukraine is too large to be selfish. Ukraine should work hard not only for Ukraine, but for all our neighbors and all our countries who stand with, with, uh, with whom we stand together for better future and against the aggressor. Let's now talk about one a small country, but very proud country and very important for the region. We keep it uh, until the end, but it's very important that we talk about it. Moldova, I mean, and uh, I, I very like this, you know, um, scale that Sergei has proposed between Maya Sandu and <laughs> Lukashenko. So do you think that Moldova is now the democratic leader of the region, not Ukraine, for example? And uh, does it, because the paradox of Maya Sandu, it seems to me, is that she tries to combine the liberal agenda with kind of a social agenda. So she's not a kind of this liberal who is neglecting all these, you know, economic hardships of a poor nation, which many, well, our countries are still quite not that rich. So if you are liberal, you should not only think about, you know, economic liberal reforms, but think about also the well-being of your citizens. So what do you think about Moldova? Uh, as you do, I applaud Moldova and I'm really, I'm really happy that Moldova is on the right track and is moving forward. Uh, uh, the victory, the parliamentary elections uh, with uh, such, a, uh, in, uh, such an impressive victory of Maya Sandu and his political party is a good, a good manifestation of promising changes in, in that country. And I wish everything the best. And I believe that Ukraine should do everything possible to support and if, uh, encourage and uh, if, uh, to, to if, uh, promote this, uh, the, the Moldova success. But there is yet another thing. Here, I believe 
It is also important to remember, and this is the message we, uh, for the KU Security Forum and uh, our good partners send to, to the West. This is extremely important to support Moldova to avoid any possible failure which might uh, come if the interests of Moldova and other democratic nations of the regions are abandoned. Uh, so, for, uh, if it would be, it, it is right to think that a lot of a lot of tasks depend on de depend on the uh, Moldova leadership. But nevertheless, without strong Ukraine's and the Western support, uh, for, uh, the task of becoming strong promoter of the democracy uh, for aspirations and European and Euro-Atlantic aspirations won't be so easy or even impossible. Thank you, Danila. I would like to ask the same question to Andrew. Uh, Andrew Wilson, how do you think, how do you see the, the trends in Moldova, for example, the latest elections? And do you agree with this statement, kind of provocative maybe, that in Moldova is a democratic a leader of the region right now? Uh, yes, I would. Um, because Maya Sandu's uh, impressive double election victory came after the failure of three other projects. The first was the, the attempt of one guy, one oligarch, Vlad Plohotnyuk, to take over the country. Uh, it would be very interesting to talk in more detail about why he failed when uh, Bidzina Ivanishvili has largely succeeded in Georgia. Um, he was never that popular. His political party was never that popular. So he had to use... Uh, political technology um, uh, to manipulate the party system and hard power to take over the judicial system. I think that was ultimately why he failed because he, he scared every other actor in the country. Um, he also tried to turn Moldova into a kind of offshore state. Um, you might think that Moldova is too poor to have an oligarchy. It's, it certainly has a one guy who's um, overproportionate, um, but um, his financial power rested on the attempt, well, the largely successful attempt to channel um, money laundering through Moldova. That was economically successful uh, for him, but destabilised uh, the country's political and economic system, eventually leading to his downfall. Uh, second project that failed was Russia's backing for the Don. Again, we could go into that in more detail. Again, it over-relied on political technology. Um, and crudely, Moldova is a very small country in, in which it's difficult to sell propaganda and fake news. Pretty simple explanation. <laughs> so now we have Sandu. Um, hopefully, she will go beyond the other third trend uh, before 2020, which was that both parts of the political spectrum in Moldova really played geopolitics instrumentally. The Don said he was pro-Russian and tried to instrumentalize that for uh, Russian favor. Uh, the pro-European party said they were pro-European and tried to instrumentalize that for EU favor. Um, so Sandu's success is based on three things. Um, one is the desire for genuine Europeanization rather than declarative um, sort of uh, 
manipulative geopolitical uh, Europeanism. And as we know, uh, Maya Sandu now has a very good foreign minister who we can trust in this regard, Nico Pescu. Um, secondly, was, as the previous speaker mentioned, this emphasis on social and bread and butter issues and linkage of that to the EU. So Russia's card is that the EU is all about external governments. Uh, Sandu's card is that the EU can improve your lives. So we will hope that um, that can be uh, physically demonstrated over the, over the next four, four or five years. Uh, and the least important factor in her victory actually was the diaspora vote. Some people have seen it as a kind of artificial victory, um, but she might as Sander would have won the presidency without the diaspora vote. Um, Moldovans in Europe, that is. Uh, and ditto with the parliamentary vote. Um, so that it wasn't just diaspora Moldovans in the EU who are pro-EU. Um, there was a swing in domestic uh, homeland opinion as well. Um, so that creates considerable grounds for optimism, but massively raises the stakes for the EU in helping Sandy's project to be a success. Thank you very much, Andrew. We are approaching the end of our discussion, but we have a few questions from our audience. So I would address every question to a particular speaker and let me ask you to be very brief uh, because we are actually running out of time. We are talking for already one hour and 40 minutes, which is impressive, but the 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 topic is, is vast and I'm very happy that we are really talking. Because participants are very talkative. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, a question to Hanna, I think, uh, from Roger Higginson. Do you consider the threat of Russian aggression expansion west of Donbass to be growing or reducing, Hanna? Uh, that is the good question, because uh, it seems to me that the aim of Russia is not to uh, uh, expand, but to destabilize the crossing line. So to prevent the uh, crossing and to make this gray zone not uh, the safe zone, but again, the hot zone. Uh, as uh, for quite a number of years before the um, uh, pandemic, we saw the uh, thousands and thousands of people daily crossing the line. So it's allowed to secure connection, uh, to feel the connection between the controlled and uncontrolled territories. People from uncontrolled territories been coming for their business, for buying something, for money, uh, from the ATMs, uh, their kids been going to universities. So it was the ties, it was the connections and the feelings between two regions, despite all the propaganda happening. And we saw a lot of the attempts how to prevent these huge numbers of uh, administrative line uh, crossing. Pandemic gave this opportunity. Pandemic really influenced the possibilities of crossing the line as there have been months when uh, uncontrolled territory has been just not allowing people to go uh, because of the health issues. Like, reasonable uh, if you cure to it, but we understand perfectly that these allowed for months to disturb the ties and connections between the people. So uh, uh, now with the increase of the fighting, it's both influenced Kyiv in terms of uh, agreements, of certain compromises maybe, uh, making the uh, destabilized the situation so the president needs to react to it. But also it's definitely the attempt to make the line insecure 
so to uh, break any kind of the possible relations and connections between the uh, Ukrainian people from two uh, sides of the uh, uh, line. Thank you, Hanna. Uh, other couple of questions to Sergei. Uh, the first from Alexander von Lingen. Is Guam still in the picture? You remember, we all remember this initiative, Guam. Sergei? No, no. It's a, it's a, it's a short answer. Another no, question, not. another question, well, uh, maybe you, you want to develop on Guam, or this is, uh, this I think is the, the final answer? Uh, no, I think it's the final answer. I mean, I don't think there's any perspective in Guam, unless the countries who are members of it decide to make something out of it. And I don't think they are in that mood right now. We have now the format like Eastern Partnership, all the European integration projects are within that format. Guam was initially set up uh, to counter uh, Russia, uh, but then it lost everything so it's i think it's just a, a empty shell right now it's good to still maintain the organization but i don't think that anything serious can or will happen within it. another another question from uh, sergey snarov i think you mentioned the question of conditionality therefore i'm asking it to you what factor in what factors influence the effectiveness of uh, institutional transformation in um, enp countries European neighborhood policy countries. Uh, in he here, we talk about Eastern Partnership. Well, I think um, uh, what, what European Union uh, uh, very often can do is that it can link uh, the money uh, or the visits or the whatever benefits it offers to the other uh, to the different Eastern Partnership countries to certain progress. Uh, it can also use very effectively uh, public statements. Uh, it can also use very effectively. Uh, diplomatic pressure, or in some cases, even the, um, the threat of sanctions. Um, uh, for instance, uh, I'll just talk about Georgian example. I think it can also be extrapolated to the other countries. When we see that the corrupt judges are being appointed by the government uh, with the sole purpose of uh, maintaining the, the solid grasp of the judiciary that they can use them later uh, in the future, it is very easy to counter this. Well, I wouldn't say very easy, but it is doable to counter this with the concrete um, uh, conditionality-driven elements, whether blacklisting these judges or whether withholding the agreements or whether being extremely uh, uh, vocal about this publicly. Now, the publicly uh, making it known what they don't like in a very um, say, strong language still has an, an effect in the countries like Georgia, where the population is still very much pro-Western. Maybe in some countries, like in Belarus, it wouldn't make much sense because uh, because the, uh, Lukashenko has managed to uh, create a different, let's say, ecosystem within the country. Uh, but in, in in case of Georgia, it is extremely um, uh, it would be extremely influential. Maybe same would not be feasible or would be effective uh, in Azerbaijan, but in Georgia it is. So I think that these are the instruments that the, that the EU possesses, that the United States possesses. Um, they've done this once, for instance, when uh, President Michel intervened in, the, uh, in a political crisis in Georgia. But now we have seen how that document been torn up by the government. Now we have to see whether there will be the episode two of that intervention and whether it will be also um, uh, followed up by concrete actions, uh, concrete conditionality driven uh, elements, because sometimes just uh, the words spoken informally don't, uh, don't work. Thank you, Sergey. Another question to Katerina. You mentioned you mentioned uh, 
The question is, you mentioned uh, that uh, the protests, uh, civil society protests, uh, potentially still there, but aren't people too scared after this crackdown to uh, come to another protest? And uh, shall we expect that this protest potential will be silent in the next uh, few years? What do you think? So I would say that the protest as the form of uh, expressing discontent to the regime, probably we won't see it anytime soon, uh, because for uh, like uh, one thing is that people simply got tired back then uh, in the winter because the protests protests were taking uh, place on a weekly or uh, in some places on a daily basis and uh, people were simply exhausted and then with all this like cleanup and the repressions that Lukashenko launched uh, since winter it makes it virtually impossible to make any uh, even smaller initiative to together uh, be it even those like smaller uh, neighborhood uh, gatherings which were taking place uh, in the past month so all this is cleaned up and uh, now the cost of uh, going on the street that will be way too high for for the people but then uh, what i wanted to say is that this uh, fundamental request for the democratic change and the frustration with the Lukashenko regime like this is not going anywhere and also the public opinion polls uh, show that the Lukashenko's rating is not uh, is not going up and uh, it's uh, uh, like depending on how you measure it I, I would say like it's I don't know maybe like 20 30 percent of popularity at its most uh, again I would <laughs> maybe dramatize it a little bit more saying that uh, there are no um, adequate opportunities even conducting a public opinion poll because all the pollsters are expelled and then you cannot legally you cannot conduct to survey uh, without uh, getting the uh, authorization of the authorities. So this picture is also kind of not accurate, even if you look at the uh, public opinion polls measurements. Thank you, Katerina. Another question goes to Andrew from Wal Walter Dersko. What are the chances of a Putin collapse scenario during the Duma election in September, pulling troops out of Ukraine to protect Moscow from some existential threat? To enlarge probably this question, maybe are there any challenges inside Russia that will kind of uh, uh, weaken Russia's expansionism that we talked about during this conversation? Well, the main challenge facing Russia in the Duma elections uh, is related to the changed regional situation after the Belarusian election in August 2020, i.e. the risks of massive fraud. Um, Russia was lucky with its um, equally fraudulent referendum earlier in 2020, uh, when the level of fraud, particularly in terms of turnout, uh, had to be much higher than in previous elections. So post-Belarus would a kind of reaction to mass fraud be as likely as uh, in Russia as in Belarus? Certainly not as likely. But the regime faces big problems with winning not victory, but credible victory. R winning without provoking a sense of outrage at the, at the sheer artificiality of it all. Um, uh, so that's two things. One is turnout. The other is reinvention of the party system, which is proving much more difficult than you might have expected. 
10, 20 years ago, you'd have simply, I don't know, got rid of United Russia and produced, produced another regime party in its stead or shuffled the pack amongst uh, uh, the lower level uh, in the so-called Kremlin parties. Uh, but it's pretty difficult to do that because all of these groups are now players in the domestic system and it's very difficult to exclude one of them uh, by changing the party system. Problems that result from artificiality, basically. Um, so there are management problems for Russia, but the risk of a real social explosion, although it exists, is less than in Belarus 2020, uh, particularly because Russia has put so much effort into preemptive coercion. Right? You can see a, a shift in strategy in that direction too. Um, your supplementary question, Volodya, um, well, you can see opinion polls showing quite clearly that R Russians don't want to pay the price of foreign adventures so much. It's not that they don't believe in the benefits so much. Um, they still support the annexation of Crimea, for example. Um, but they don't want to pay the price. You know, they want resources shifted to domestic politics, social issues, a la Sandu, as it were. Um, uh, and the challenge for Putin is to deliver on that whilst, I guess, still being addicted to his old habits of diversionary foreign policy adventure. Um, I don't think that, you know, basically he'll try and do both. Right? Um, uh, and the implications of, for the region are, what kind of diversion does he pick? Um, to be honest, it, unfortunately, I think Ukraine is in the firing line because of the, his particular obsessions. Um, and because of his disillusion with Zelensky and because of the very, very bad history that we saw in that recent essay on the, the spiritual unity of the two peoples um, uh, as a kind of uh, meaningless exercise in actual history, but a kind of very aggressive declaration in, in foreign policy terms. Um, so further uh, escalation against Ukraine is probably the most likely scenario, unfortunately. Um, uh, particularly if I'm wrong and if there is mass process after the Duma election. Thank you, thank you, Andrew. And the last question goes to Danilo from Serhii Horitsenko. Uh, what are Ukraine's major diplomacy gains in the past 30 years? And what is in store for the EU Eastern Partnership countries? It's quite a question. Uh, you know, it will take three minutes. Three minutes. <laughs> three minutes. You know, first of all, the biggest uh, accomplishment we have, and this is true, let me sincerely say that our biggest accomplishment is the recognition of Ukraine's statehood and independence happened in 1991-92. Uh, Ukraine became uh, an important member of the international and responsible member of the international community of, uh, throughout the whole history of our diplomatic new modern diplomatic history we not only consumed the western or international support but we contributed strongly to 
basically all global uh, processes and international developments being uh, the member of the united the founding member of the united nations and uh, being uh, an aspiring an aspiring uh, participant of the euro-atlantic uh, uh, affairs so uh, and just having as to have that in a nutshell uh, for, uh, for not elaborating on many practical things that were achieved by, by the Ukrainian diplomacy I want to uh, underline and stress upon the most important one what we see right now uh, for in our efforts to deter Russia's aggression this is because of Ukraine's diplomacy that our nation made an important contribution in strengthening the international coalition to support not only Ukraine, but the basic fundamental principles of international law. To have this, uh, to, 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 distingu to, to distinguish in the international politics what is good, what is bad. And uh, I'm happy to uh, use the opportunity to praise my uh, uh, colleagues and friends in the Ukrainian diplomatic service who made it because it's a you know we are we are used to un underestimate how important the work is the work done by Ukraine this work is done by many strong Ukrainian patriots men and women who made an important contribution into the global affairs and I'm proud of this so summing up our discussion, I, I thank you, thank you for, for having this, you know, for, uh, spectacular performance, uh, having this different, you know, as you, as you put a 3D uh, for, uh, for, um, uh, pictures of what's going on in the region. Uh, for the, in my opinion, it is important to mention that the danger is still there. And here, let me jump on what Andrew said in his last sentence about the article published by President Putin. President Putin suggested, you know, the, the whole story about this article proves that uh, the Kremlin has no solution to the conflicts they waged against all our nations. They simply have no solution. Since uh, they did everything possible to become an enemy of our nations, they uh, have chosen they have chosen that track since this is part of their imperialistic mentality and they do not see any other way to settle it uh, uh, except of, uh, uh, of having more blood more hybrid special oper operations against our independence 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 of our, of all our nations he made that article because he has no solution and he believes that by producing this propaganda, he may poison the minds and hearts of many people in our nations, in Ukraine and Belarus, because his article was, was not only addressed to Ukraine, but to Belarus as well, to uh, advocate the, uh, the diseases that are being brought by the Russian Empire. He will fail and we will win. Let's hope. Let's end on this uh, optimistic note. 
And I'm indeed very glad that we uh, did this uh, very interesting endeavor and basically that we will continue to look not only specific countries but on the region as a whole and see the, the trends and risks and challenges which are in many ways common. We were talking about Russian aggression, we were talking about increasing authoritarianism, we were talking about these ups and downs. I think it's very important. So. Um, I'm very glad to, to have uh, our speakers, Katerina Shmatina, Hanna Shellest, uh, uh, Sergei Kapanadze, Andrew Wilson, Danilo Lubkivsky. Uh, this was an event by, organized by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine World together with the Kyiv Security Forum. A great honor for us. Uh, my name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, uh, Chief Editor of UkraineWorld.org. Uh, and I hope you will follow us on social networks and uh, follow our podcasts and videos and the website. We will also publish a kind of a, a summary of this discussion in a text format and uh, all of us, you can re-watch it on social networks on our Facebook and YouTube. Thank you and stay with us.